This morning we reflected upon the passing of our Queen and uh, the accession of our new King, and truly we are entering a new era. But as we have said, our God is in control, He does not change, and we can trust Him. This afternoon I was present at the proclamation of accession and uh, could say with meaning, God save the King. As William Tyndale prayed those centuries ago, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. And that's what we pray for, that the Lord would be gracious and merciful, that he would come to know the Savior in a very real way. And as we pray for these things, and as we consider this great change in all of what is being demonstrated and laid before us, all the, the pomp and circumstance, as it were, the great titles and the offices which we hold with respect, I wanted really to take some time to consider the glorious titles of the Lord Jesus, those lasting titles of the true King, and particularly this title that he is Alpha and Omega, first and last. Amongst the many titles for the Lord Jesus Christ, these two magnificent and instructive titles are declared by the Savior himself. Jesus, who is the truth makes this stunning declaration in our text concerning his person and his position. And really, friends, they are titles that should encourage our hearts this night if we know him. They should strengthen our faith. They should revive our weary souls in what are very difficult days. troubled days, they are uncertain days, and that's also true in terms of the proclamation of the gospel, and that's why these titles are so precious. John, who receives this revelation, is indeed himself in the midst of a great trial. We're told that he was in Patmos for the word of God, the testimony of Jesus Christ. He's in tribulation and exile, and so John is in isolation, he's on a lonely island in the Aegean Sea on the Lord's day. And into that, the Lord Jesus Christ draws near to him and speaks these words of power, of encouragement, of tenderest love, and makes known to him revelation of unsurpassed glory and of Christ's sublime person. And this had the purpose of encouraging him and raising his mind and spirit beyond the, the difficulties to the glories of Christ and the fact that Christ rules, that Christ reigns. And, you know, John, he had experienced and known the cruelty of Nero, Emperor Nero. John was very old at this point. He'd lived to see the city of Jerusalem destroyed, hundreds of thousands of his fellow Jews massacred. He had lived to see nearly a thousand towns and villages in Israel ransacked and devastated. John had outlived all his fellow apostles who had been systematically executed. And here he was on this rock, doomed to die, on this rock five miles wide, ten miles long, in the middle of a sea. And beyond that, the beloved church at Ephesus, which had planted six other churches at least, maybe more, had left its first love and the Lord had threatened to close it down. And then, of course, you had the church at Pergamos, which was idolatrous. 
It was immoral. The Lord said he was about to come with a sword in his mouth and smite that church. The church at Thyatira compromised itself with sin and wearied the Lord with its iniquities and worldliness and faced judgment. The church at Sardis was pronounced to be dead. The church at Laodicea was so lukewarm that it was nauseating to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here is John in this isolated situation. Things seem to be in tatters. What hope for the proclamation of the gospel? What hope for the advance of the church of Jesus Christ? What hope for the expansion of the kingdom of Christ that would impact to the ends of the earth? And so John needed this encouragement from heaven and a vision of what the Lord was doing. You know, maybe we hear those things and we feel that we can understand a little of what John is feeling. You know, here we are, small cause at the end of the land, the vast majority outside, no interest in the things of Christ. It's interesting, we mentioned in the prayer meeting before uh, the service tonight that there is a lot of language that is speaking of God and of grace and all of these things, and yet really a lack of awareness of what is truly being said. And, you know, you, you take that and you magnify it across the land, even to many nations across the earth, and suddenly the task seems overwhelming. And not only that, but if you look at the state of the churches in our land, very often we find heartbreak. We find trouble, we find damage, error, division, compromise, and strife. And so we're seeking under the Lord to be faithful and to proclaim the gospel clearly and passionately, to do his work in his way according to the scriptures. But at times, we can just feel weary and tired and frail. And then with the significant events that have taken place in the life of our nation, what do we do then? It's then that we need to see again the exalted, glorified Christ. We need to know that he is at work when so many are quick to say that he is not. And so we need to see this great encouragement that John had, and in particular this title. If you look at verses 10 to 11, it says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. The Lord Jesus speaks, and we see that the Savior is not indifferent or ignorant of the condition of his faithful servant. In fact, far from it. He knows exactly how he is. That's a great comfort to us. You know, if you're facing trials, difficulties at the moment, and you're tempted to think that the Lord doesn't understand, he really does. He knows. He knows your heart. He knows how you are. And so the Lord comes to instruct John and inspire him and strengthen him and sustain him and comfort him with a new vision and from that for it to be recorded in his word to be recorded in the Scriptures for his people through the ages. I just think it's so wonderful that the Lord Jesus Christ demonstrates his tender love towards his people in this way. You know, they can be going through such awful times and difficult circumstances. They can feel far away from so many things, but they're never far from the Savior. He is always near. 
They may be imprisoned and banished and chained. They may be separated from their brethren, severed from the church, removed far away from so many things, yet there is Christ with his people to strengthen, to revive, to comfort, to sweeten. And how his presence cheers our fading souls and how his presence at times can open a, a heavenly door when things seem so dark, when trouble like a gloomy cloud comes around us, there is our Savior standing with us, his loving kindness. And when we're downcast and at the end of ourselves, even there, the Lord draws near to us and he takes us up. And in the multitude of troubling thoughts, he comforts our minds and hearts. And, and often it's when we're in those times of perplexity and darkness that the Lord uses those occasions to show his sympathy, to show his love, to grant to us his grace. And even though these days pose the challenges that they do, the offense of the cross has not ended. When people prefer for their ears to be tickled than to submit to the truth of God, when faithfulness will bring opposition, the Lord comes to comfort his suffering people as with John with words of tenderness and encouragement and to show again his resplendent regal glory. And notice that he lays his hand upon John, he lays his hand upon us as it were, and he says, don't be afraid. Fear not. He draws near to encourage, strengthen, and to prove that his grace is sufficient. And so this wonderful title, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, carries so much meaning. And so let's ask the question, in what ways is the Lord Jesus the first and last, the Alpha and Omega? Well, those are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, and it denotes absolutely the very first and the very last. Now, it's interesting, if you were to look into the way the Jews adopted this, they used it to speak of something in completion, in entirety. So, for example, when they spoke of Adam breaking the law, they said he broke it from the first to the last of the Hebrew alphabet. And so the idea is that there is a, a completeness in this title for the Lord Jesus. There is nothing lacking. It is, it is whole. It is complete. You know, when we think of the future and we, we look all the possibilities, all the uncertainties, as believers, we know that Christ is the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And in our lives, we can ever thank him as we sang for all that is past. We can trust him for all that's to come. This beginning and closing with Christ involves the presence, the grace, and the blessing of Christ all through the undeveloped history which lays ahead in the days, in the weeks, in the months, in the years to come. He is first and he is last. And in that title, there's not only that completeness, but it shows the essential deity of the Lord Jesus. It shows that he is the Son of God. He says, I am the first and the last. Only God could make such a statement like that truthfully and definitely. It's interesting, if you were to go into the Old Testament, when the Lord God asserted his divine greatness, he uses exactly that language. So Isaiah 44, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. 
Isaiah 48, 12. Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, my called. I am he. I am the first. I am also the last. So Jesus really is fully God. And that is vital, absolutely vital for us to know and to believe. It is vital when it comes to considering who he is and what he has done, the significance of what he did upon the cross. In him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He is fully God, fully man. He is the first of deity, the last of deity, the second person of the Trinity. He is from everlasting to everlasting. Who is, who was, who is to come, the Almighty. And to in any way deny the deity of Jesus, you deny the gospel. From first to last, Jesus, our Savior, is God. All the essential perfections, all the divine attributes, the boundless resources of deity rest in him. He's a glorious Savior. He is the one on whom our whole faith rests. It's the only sure ground. And this is the precious one who went to Calvary to deal with our sin through his sacrificial substitutionary death. He died in the place of all who would ever trust in him. And in him we are saved. We are secure for all eternity. You know, maybe you're here tonight and your sin weighs heavy upon you. You look to the Lord Jesus. You know, as you rest in his person and work, you can in confidence lay upon him all your cares, all your anxieties, all the trials, all the sorrows, all the difficulties, all the needs. Casting all your care upon him, seeing that he cares for you. Simply by believing in the Lord Jesus to come as you are as a sinner, coming to the place of mercy, pleading the merit and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And then, dear friends, when you're in Christ, you really do know great grace. And he is a Savior who is able to bear us up because he is fully God, the first and the last. And also that title, Alpha and Omega, shows that he is the Focus of the Scriptures. He is the focus of the Bible. The first and last of the Word of God. He is the sum and substance of both the law and the gospel. He is the great theme, the Old and New Testaments. You know, in Christ, the Messiah, Jesus, the Savior, the Son of God, the Redeemer, all the truths of Scripture come together. All the types, all the shadows point to Him. All the prophecies give witness to Him. All the glory of the Scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, they culminate with Christ, culminate to the cross. Do you know, the Bible would be a mystery from first to last, but for Jesus Christ. Until He is seen, the Bible is a closed book. But when he is found as the Holy Spirit is at work, every mystery opens. It is all there for us to see. That wonderful thread weaving through of salvation in Jesus Christ, the provision of God, his own son, the ultimate lamb of God. You know, just think for a moment, think of all those lovely types in the scriptures, Christ, our Passover, or when you, you think about the tabernacle and in the Old Testament, you think about all its construction, its furniture, you know, all the various parts of it, all of it pointing to the Lord Jesus, his person and his work. Or in the Old Testament, you think of, you know, the manna falling from heaven all around the camp for the Israel, daily and freely supplying the needs of the, the whole host of the people. 
And then you read in the New Testament when Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and died. This is that bread which comes down from heaven that a man may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If a man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And when we think too of these wonderful you know, pictures in the sacrifices, you know, the, the living bird dipped in the blood of the slain bird and then set free. And then we see there the picture of a, a risen living Savior who shed his own blood upon the cross and then rose from the grave, the hope and resurrection, proclaiming to every humble believer, because I live, you shall live also. Think of all the prophecies, how they point to him. To him all the prophets give witness. And then through to the end of the scriptures, Jesus, the focus in glorious consistency, magnificence. Jesus, the one who fulfills the law. And when it says he became the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. Concerning the gospel, Christ is the substance of the whole, all its great truths, its holy precepts, its instructions, its promises, its amazing hopes. They all center in Christ. The Alpha and the Omega. The Old Testament predicts the new, the new fulfills the old, and both unite in testifying truly. This is the Son of God. It's a wonderful title for our Savior. And this title, Alpha and Omega, shows that Jesus is first and last when it comes to salvation. You know, this view of Jesus comes home to every heart that is awakened spiritually, to every mind that has been opened to the truth of God. The moment the Holy Spirit works to show the sinner the reality of the soul's condition, they're at once brought to despair of doing anything to save themselves. You know, they see the holiness of God. They see the perfection of the law. And any idea of trying to earn some favor with God or their own goodness or or trying to, to work together and put together some merit to present to a holy God, it is shattered, vanished. And he takes his place by the side of the publican who cried out, Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner throws himself at the feet of Jesus, his last, his final, his only refuge. And then for the first time, such a one appreciates these precious titles of Jesus. I am the first and the last. And that is true in salvation. There is none other. It's in him alone that we're saved and made right with God. He is the first and last. And he's the first and last in pardoning our sins. That there is forgiveness with God. The forgiveness of the greatest sins is one of the great truths of the Bible. To be able to proclaim to you this night that there is a way in which all your sin, all your filth, all that God sees, all that is there, all the rebellion can be dealt with and forgiven and removed and, and sorted. It's a wonderful thing to proclaim. And it's all in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the sum and substance of the pardon. And it comes alone through the work that he did upon the cross at Calvary. How he offered himself. How he shed his own blood. There is no forgiveness of sin. No guilt cleansing. No purifying of conscience. But through the blood of Jesus Christ. Without the shedding of blood. There is no remission of sin. There is no pardon. No pardon apart from in Christ. 
Friend, if you're here tonight and you think there is any other way for you to be right with God, see again the first and last devastate such a view. Jesus Christ alone. And you know, if you're here tonight and you're aware of your sin, you know, I don't need to know how deep your sin is or how grave your sin might be. It is enough that you know that you're a sinner. And my role is to point you to the Savior and to say that this blood that he shed can wash your sin-tainted, guilt-oppressed soul whiter than snow. And if you come and you repent of your sin and you trust in him, he can pardon you, he can forgive you, he can save you. Romans 3, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. Through the blood of Jesus, there is a complete, free, present pardon. A pardon which no unworthiness shall ever cancel, which no unthankfulness shall ever remove. It is a gift of his grace. You can be pardoned this night in Christ, the first and the last. And also he's the first and last of our justification before God. You know, just as with the pardon given to us, so it is in our justification, we don't contribute anything. Romans 3, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. So our sins are dealt with. How are we accepted with God? Our sin has been dealt with, but also we need a righteousness the perfection. And if ever we're to be justified, it is by a righteousness, not that we can bring up ourselves, but by a righteousness given to us from entirely outside of ourselves. It is the righteousness of Jesus. And as we said in previous weeks, when we are in Christ, when we've been forgiven, when we are united to Christ, when we're clothed in his righteousness, it means not only am I forgiven, my sin dealt with, past, present, future, but clothed in his righteousness, when God sees me, he doesn't see all the filth of my sin, but he sees the perfection of his son. And I am accepted in the beloved. And it's only in Christ, the first and last of our righteousness, that we are accepted and we are complete. You know, the sinner can only be saved if the demands of the law have been satisfied on his behalf. And that's what Christ has done. Christ has done that for us. By his divine obedience, he has magnified the law and made it honorable. And he has stood as our short years, died in our place, and his obedience becomes ours, and he has also taken the penalty of our transgressions against the law, and we are made the righteousness of God in him. All I need to be saved is in Jesus Christ. And if you're here this night and you still don't understand it, may God show it to you. Don't look anywhere else but to the first and last. And you know, if you come to him, Repent of your sin. Trust in him. All of these things are given to you. Christ is the whole. 
He is all that we need. He is the whole of our obedience, the whole of our satisfaction, the whole of our merit before God. Christ, the first and the last, and all that intervenes of our personal, present, and eternal salvation. Christ all and in all. None but Jesus can do sinners good. Don't be in any doubt about that. And so the first and last draws together just some of these things together. Wonderful title. But then as we draw to an end and bring these things together, what does this mean in reality for me? What does it mean for me if I know the Lord Jesus and he's the first and last? Well, it means this, that Christ is the preeminent one, that he should be first and last in our hearts. He stands at the head of creation, the firstborn of every creature. He stands as the head of his church, the firstborn among many brethren, that in all things he might have the preeminence. And therefore he should be the first and last in our love, in our priorities, and in our service. He is our Lord, he is our Savior, he is our King. And you know, in life there are many things, many people, many objects that compete for our heart. The world wants our affections. People want ascendancy. Sin wants to reign and to push Christ aside. But we must give no place to any of those rivals. Christ must be on the throne of our hearts. And these glorious titles must be etched on our hearts by the Holy Spirit. As one worthy explains, Christ declares, I'm the Alpha and Omega and must be the first and the last of your whole soul. You are mine by the gift of my Father, by the purchase of my death, by the power of my resurrection, by the conquest of my grace, by the indwelling of my spirit, by your own solemn and irrevocable surrender and consecration to my glory. You are mine. And may it be that indeed he would reign in our hearts, Christ first and last. And in that regard, he must also be our focus in difficulty. We must never lose sight of him when trials come. You know, if God leads us through troubles, we must fix our eyes on Christ as the first and last in the midst. Christ is the Alpha and the Omega of all our afflictions. With him they begin, with him and in him, and to him they will end. He's there with us at the beginning of our sorrow, through it to its end, and in his wisdom, his righteousness, his love, and his grace will indeed work for our good and his glory. In his gracious purpose, each trial that comes is designed to bring us to a closer acquaintance with himself and also to change us so that we become more like him. You know, if you're a believer and you're in the valley tonight, don't think all of a sudden that, you know, you're no longer in favor with the Lord or that, that Christ has turned away from you or that you're no longer in his hand or no longer his child and yet you've got no hope. Oh, it's so far from that. Of course, as a heavenly father, he may discipline you when you need it, but because he loves you and desires to be closer to you in that regard and that walk with him. But as Christ was the Alpha of your affliction, so he will be the Omega. In other words, he will bring you through. And as he is the first in this adversity that has come, in the blow that comes, in the sorrow that might grip your heart, so he will be the last. He will be the guide. He will be the comforter. He will be the sympathizer all through whatever dark hour you endure. 
all the time, skillfully, gently, safely, leading you home to himself as our good shepherd. We sung that, that wonderful psalm earlier. He is our shepherd who leads us and goes before us. And you know, one day will come when he will bring us home to be with him and his own dear hand will wipe every tear away from our eyes. He is first and last. And he's first and last in terms of his love being unchanging. We love him. Why? Because he first loved us. And so we shall continue to love him because he will love us until the end. And so as Christ is the first of our love, so he will be the last. And since no line can stretch back into the past eternity of his love, so no line can measure it into that everlasting future. Since the Lord's love to us had no beginning, he has no ending. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. His love cannot change. Christ will love us, love us everlasting us, and he will indeed be with us and keep us to the end of all our trials, all our troubles, all our stumblings, all our sufferings to the end of life and then on through all eternity. And there'll be no end to that love. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so take heart tonight. If you're a believer for Jesus, having loved you first, he will love you last and he will love you forever. And then, as we finish, Christ first and last, coming again to perfect the church and judge the world. You know, the full extent of this title is put on mighty display when he comes again, when at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, if you are here tonight and you are set against the Lord, you know, if you are not his, then you're against him. The day will come when you will bow before him and you will acknowledge him as Lord. And the word of God is clear. It is sublime and it is solemn that Jesus is coming again in stunning glory and majesty and power as the last and final end of all things and his people's full redemption. As all things began with Christ, so all will end in Christ. And the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, he will then be the lamb standing on Mount Zion. And then he will be the last as he was the first and he will appear gloriously. And indeed all the purposes of God, all the counsels of eternity, all the revelations of truth, all the history of the redeemed church, all the, the greatness and splendor of redemption, all the honor, praise, and glory of a restored universe will find their full meaning, the greatest expression in him as the Alpha and Omega and the first and the last, that God may be all in all. And what a thing it will be to be one of that great saved multitude which no man can number who shall have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb and shall appear before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he that sits on the throne shall dwell among them. What a prospect, dear friends. And for all the changes that we see in this changing world, that certain outcome is never in doubt. Kings come, kings go, but this king reigns forever. The question is, 
will you be there? Maybe you're asking, well, where is my eternity? Where will I go? Shall I be there? Well, if you're here this night and you know yourself to be a lost sinner, and yet you are believing simply and only in the Lord Jesus, though your faith may be but a flicker, may your love just be a spark, your hope just a glimmer. If you're looking to Jesus alone, there is hope. And you know, as we rest in him, as we trust him, we can know that he is the first and the last and he will keep us. And friends, when we think about the prospect of seeing him, surely that should motivate us to live for his glory now. Surely we should want to do all that pleases him now, to pursue holiness and devotion that one day we will be for him. Do you know, even at the very close of the scripture, the mighty trust is announced and emphasized. Revelation twenty-two twenty: he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming quickly. Amen, even so, come Lord Jesus. And so our attitude surely should be one of watchfulness and prayer and hope and faithfulness, even in days like these. And so let's keep that blessed hope in view the glorious appearing of the Lord with every service done for the Lord, every hardship endured, every mercy received, every blessing bestowed, all coming together towards one glorious hope. Jesus, the first and the last, is coming again to receive his people to himself and are gathering together to him with all the ransomed people of God and that will be glorious. What a coronation that will be. That time when we will cast our crowns before him, lost in wonder, love and praise. Jesus, first and last. Do you know him, friend? Do you know him? Have you bowed the knee to this King of Kings? Only if you are in him this night can you have that hope. To be outside of him is to have no hope and to face a devastating eternity. I pray that God would be gracious to you and that you would turn from your sin and trust in the only Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen.